So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1448, The Disappearing Middle Class with Alyssa Quart, author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. There's a lack of solidarity across class lines. And and when we can build that, we can see the sort of electoral power that can be mustered. I mean, I think that's bringing groups together, um, kind of uh, not erasing the differences, but showing the continuity, the continuity between uh, somebody who has student loans for a for-profit college and someone who has student loans for graduate school, let's say. So Money episode 1447, The Disappearing Middle Class with Alyssa Quart, author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are continuing to talk about the cost of living in America. Today, we're focusing on the middle class and why it's become a disappearing act. This is part of a series that we're doing on So Money, as well as on CNET Money. If you follow the link in our show notes, it'll take you to Priced Out, our expansive coverage of coping with the high cost of living in America. We have stories about dealing with the rising cost of prescription drugs, caring for aging relatives, having children, skyrocketing grocery prices, and much more. We're going to be adding to this series as the days go on. So make sure to bookmark that link. Today, though, we're in conversation with Alyssa Quart. She's the author of Squeezed, among many books. Squeezed is about why our families can't afford America. She's also the executive editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Program. It's a nonprofit devoted to reporting on inequality. Alyssa has a podcast series right now called Going for Broke, but we spend the bulk of our time talking about what has happened to the middle class, specifically the educated middle class, those of us who went to college, maybe even grad school, but struggling with economic security. The middle class is kind of withering away, says Alyssa, and becoming what she calls the middle precariat, people who may have made all the right choices, but are just barely making it and are now extremely vulnerable. She talks about how she herself experiences hardship as a freelance writer and a mother, how it impacted her family's savings, their financial outlook. She talks about the future and ideas for how this precarious situation can change with certain programs and policies. Here's Alyssa Quartz. Alyssa Quart, welcome to So Money. Great to meet you and be here. I'm really honored that you are on my show. You have written many, many books, uh, some of them which touch on important principles, economic principles, financial principles. Today, we're going to talk about your theses around the middle class, the evolution of that uh, term and category of people, as well as you know this this myth and tragedy around the do-it-yourself ethos, which I know in personal finance we can get really wrapped up in. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just you know, grit will save your life. Uh, there's a lot of theories around that that you dispel in your next book. But first, let's start with what's current and on your plate right now, which is a show, a public radio series called Going for Broke. Would love to 
give you the floor to talk a little bit about that since that's really timely and, and really important. Yeah. So going for broke is about how we can potentially put care into things that we don't usually think of as about care. Like the, you know, the care economy ten, tends to mean, you know, elder care, daycare. But what if we put care into labor, uh, into making sure that people felt uh, cared for on the job and were allowed to actually love their work, not just as a we work euphemism, but to have conditions where they enjoyed and felt value in their jobs? What, how, what would it be if we had housing for people where they felt cared for by their nation, their society, their city, spatial, spatial equality or spatial justice is the term that's used to describe that in the show. And we talk to people who've experienced homelessness at times. So, so yeah, it's three hours uh, where we're looking at all this stuff with from experts and who have innovative ideas and also from people who are experts in their own lives have lived through this. Someone who was experienced homelessness and dated while homeless. He talks about this. Uh, somebody who housed a uh, homeless couple uh, in their home. Uh, so really human stories that make real the way people are struggling in this country. You're very interested in the economic well-being of people. As a journalist, you've covered this as a storyteller, but also telling your own story. Maybe we could start there a little bit and, and have you share the personal draw to this space of exploring uh, the economic challenges that we have today and, and where they come from. Yeah. So uh, I I think I, um, I'd probably start with this idea that that we have in the middle class that goes back to the man in the gray flannel suit, right? 1950s America of mobility, of working hard and getting what you deserve and climbing the class ladder. And that's something that a lot of people believed in. Some people still do. Uh, but what I found when I was reporting my last book, Squeezed, how our families can't afford America was that so many people have been left out of this equation and they're not all the people you think. I mean, they they include school teachers. I, I spoke to a number of them who were driving Uber uh, after school and on weekends, they'd meet the parents of the kids they taught while they were doing this second moonlighting job or um, accountants, librarians, professors who are on SNAP who I went to the supermarket with uh, while they were shopping, trying to eke out uh, a meal for their ch child. And those are the kind of stories that to me showed how a lot of mobility has been stymied in the last 40 years. And I wanted to find out why and how we could help people ha have a different way to think about their own lives and stop blaming themselves for it. Yes. And, and, this is a, an economic hardship that was even true for you as a freelance writer, as a mother, and it impacted your savings, your financial outlook. How so? And, and maybe you could give us a little bit of insight into your personal experience with all of this. Yeah. So it's all a continuum. And that's true uh, for sort of Ray Suarez, who's the host of the show that I just worked on, who is was a celebrity journalist and a great broadcaster, but then found himself unable to pay for his dental care. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of up and down the class gradient. And I would describe my husband and I, who are freelance reporters as upper middle class, at least in terms of education and, uh, uh, you know, our self-conception, let's say. But when we first had our kid uh, 11 years ago, neither of us had 
healthcare that we didn't have to purchase. We didn't uh, have secure jobs. We were contingent. You know, we were waiting, going from assignment to assignment. And we suddenly realized that this was no longer going to work, this this way of living. And I felt the, the sort of precarity, which I, which I wound up having, coming up with a term to describe that feeling and that condition. I mean, I got this job, the job I have working with people who are in much harder straits than I was. But I think having that year uh, of instability in particular really gave me a sense of what the stakes were. I feel them in my body. I feel them when I help people. I try to hook people up with with um, funds and resources because it was something that our family had felt on a on a different scale than many of the people I'm working with. You you call this sort of new middle class as the middle precariat. Can you define that for us? So yeah, the term the precariat is a combination of proletariat, that term that uh, Karl Marx used to describe the working class, and precarious. So it's like precarious proletariat. But what I call the middle precariat is I'm trying to describe people who uh, have capital of various kinds. They may have, uh, you know, cultural capital. They went to college. They went to graduate school even. They might have worked in jobs for institutions people might consider even prestigious. Uh, But they are also very shaky economically. They're going from gig to gig. Uh, And one of the things that also happens with this economic shakiness is you lose the narrative of your life because you, you think you, there's a story of ascent or just of a, a kind of orderly story, personal story of your narrative, what, what's supposed to happen to you. Um, and it gets interrupted when you no longer have work. And this happened to people of my profession of journalists after 2008, uh, but it's happened in a number of professions uh, a lot of different professions that thought that they were going to have security and then people trained in them. I mean, even technology, right? People trained in it and then they had to retrain when they reached a certain age. And then they realized they had aged out of the market. So uh, up and down the gradient, there's a lot of insecurity now around work and middle precariat describe people towards the top of it, uh, the, the gradient who nonetheless were having trouble finding jobs and finding that sense of calm and well-being and, and security. What do you think are some of the major reasons for why the middle class has become this sort of dwindling sector of our of our economy? And what are the reasons, the big reasons, the systemic issues are making it so that um, you have this precarious life, economically precarious life? I think it's obviously right now it's inflation, <laughs> um, sure. but there's other elements too. There is uh, the rise in rents and the rise in uh, housing prices astronomically in cities. There was the rise in, in the cost of education, um, doubling and tripling uh, in 20 years, quadrupling in some cases from you know when I went to graduate school and now it went 20 some years ago and it's um, the cost is now something like four times as much. Um, and Healthcare. So these are the big these are the big elements that make a, a middle precariat that compose it. But it's also the shrinking of professions like academic professions, things like graphic artists. You know, like there's there's a whole world of sort of like niche professions that are now far more kind of unstable than they were when I started out. Librarians. Um, you know, I talked to accountants. You know. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I mean, some of it is that there's technology that has taken the place for some of these fields, you know, and that and there hasn't been 
retraining for the professions. You'd have to go seek it out. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it. what everything you're saying, you know, reminds me of when we see sort of these like surveys, I get a lot of media attention, like people making six figures, living paycheck to paycheck. And there's a lot of uh, confusion around that. Like, how can that be? Well, I think you've made the case, but what do you want to remind people as we look at just because you make a certain amount of money, right? It doesn't mean that you have economic security. It sort of like goes back to the Biden student loan program where they base the uh, the benefits on partly on salary and income. And that is not a true reflection of someone's financial potential and capacity. And so there is a lack of sympathy almost or empathy that is that is needed. And I wonder like how do you how do we flex that muscle? Because I think this is that's part of how we get to a solution is that we start to see these people as humans who are really struggling, not to any fault of their own, and not labeling them by their income, categorizing them by income. I feel like there's something there's like sort of a, a link missing there. Yeah. I mean I think it's it's because there's a natural built-in lack of solidarity uh, in this country around money. We're not. We're told not to talk about it. People have a lot easier time talking about sex than <laughs> money. And I, I argue for things like things like being transparent in the squeeze. I do transparent about your income and your assets with your children, and also try to explain where you're at with your the parents in the schoolyard. If that's if you need someone to help you pick up your kid because you can't afford a babysitter, it's good to explain why. I think there's a lot of shame around that. So that's that's part of it. But then I also think there's uh, you know, there's a lack of solidarity across class lines. Right. And and when we can build that, we can see the sort of electoral power that can be mustered. I mean, I think that's bringing groups together um, kind of uh, not erasing the differences, but showing the continuity, the continuity between uh, somebody who has student loans for a for-profit college and someone who has student loans for graduate school, let's say. I mean, I, I think that's really important. I, it's one of the projects I did, it was a couple of years ago, was with someone named Astra Taylor, who does debt collective work on a pretty uh, thrilling work that she's done around the student loans. I think it was part of the what led to the um, student loan breakthrough. But we, we did a project on medical workers who had huge amounts of debts, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this was, they were now being called essential workers. And these were people who probably make a fair amount. I mean, not uh, some of them were respiratory therapists or health aides, but many of them were like doctors and nurses. But it, if you have that much debt for your education and you don't come from a family with resources, that is going to put you in a place that's not that different from people who are working poor because um, you're still trying, they're trying, maybe trying to pay off their undergraduate, but this person's trying to pay off both their undergraduate and their medical school, right? So it shaved down whatever they would have as take home. And I thought that that project, I can share it with you and maybe you can even put it up. It was, we took, we had the medical workers hold up the, their debt numbers. It was pretty wow. powerful and yeah. did a photo essay on it. Yeah. No, it's, it's just the, uh, the tragedy of, you know, you are going into a field to help people to be in service, takes a lot of education and training. And then how do we reward these students? We, we saddle them with all of this debt. It just doesn't really make sense. And so it begs the question, you know, what sort of like social reforms or political reforms do you see are necessary to get us maybe back to a time when, you know, we could really have a truly uh, robust middle class that 
that could afford a house, could afford vacations and uh, and savings and investing. I just read a statistic the other day that only less than half of Americans are investing in the stock market. Um, and so how do we get back to a place where middle class can actually build wealth? Well, I mean, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think some of this has to do with kind of housing and having housing that's more affordable and, you know, uh, putting rent control, taking rent control apartments out of the hands of investors where, you know, I don't know if you've read about this, but in New York City, there's like, there's just thousands and thousands of apartments that are uh, lying empty because nobody's forcing these landlords to uh, rent, I forget if it's rent controlled or rent um, stabilized, but these probably both of some of these apartments, they're, they're not being uh, let. And so these, these are opportunities that middle-class people could be living in, right? And that would be something that would be helpful. Like, let's force these landlords to, you know, deoccupy, <laughs> whatever the word is, um, their, their, their apartments and rent them out again and stop hoarding them. I mean, I think on a, I, I've written a lot on uh, something called worker co-ops and that's sort of a potential model for, to separate the, the ownership class from the worker class in this in this sense, and that they're on the rise. There's more of them, and uh, they're they exist for things like uh, cut and sew factories um, and uh, auto factories for like auto workers, repair factories, uh, repair shops, and I, having the uh, workers have a share of ownership. I think is essential. Because one of the things that starts to happen, if we're talking about this huge differential, you have CEOs paid 399 times as much as a typical worker in 2021. And you can say, oh, that's uh, a distinction between uh, so-called unskilled workers and people at the top. But I think it, it affects everybody to have that level of income inequality. Yeah. I've had a couple of guests on this show who, on the t- on the subject of, like, say, racial inequality, right? They're not so convinced that 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 we can level the playing field without really rethinking our political structure. That in a capitalist world, it is almost symptomatic that you're going to get to a place like this where you have widening wealth gaps, you have injustice uh, between certain classes. And, And I just wonder, and this might be an existential question, but have you thought about like you know, I just came back from France and certainly they have their problems, but there, you know, education is free, childcare is subsidized. Um, certainly they have, you know, their their issues, but the workers there really make sure to voice and they, they go on strike quite frequently, more frequently than here. The power dynamic is very different versus here with, you know, voters and our elected leaders. And so I just wonder politically, can we really make improvements with the current capitalist model that we have. So have you had any thoughts on this or had conversations with people on this? No, of course. I mean, this is one of the things that I think about a lot. You know, obviously, you know, I I, I mean, I think if we're talking about things like affordable rent uh, or healthcare being accessible, um, you know, we had proposals for affordable healthcare and they've been stymied, right? Maybe that we'll have another chance now if we have to control the Senate for these kind of things. Who knows? Um, but that this is part of um, the inequality that we have. It's it's baked into our, our country, and you know, it's a lot of it's about taxes too. Um, and so I, I was very thrilled that um, 
you know, to see in Boston and in Massachusetts, they're now they passed the millionaires tax um, just, just recently. But th- that's something that that sh- should be um, put put in place. Um, you know, in 1943, the top tax rate was 92 percent or something like that. Or um, and that there's no reason why we should be, again, exceeded by the past, which is something that. When, again, when we think about the middle class and mobility, I think this in the, someone born in the '80s has a nine, like a forty-five to fifty percent chance of exceeding their parents in terms of economic security, and someone born in the 1940s had like a ninety percent chance. So, it's, so mobility has gone down, and I mean it's mirrored actually in the tax rate. <laughs> How do you think younger generations are going to have to prepare for the future? I mean, uh, what what can they do in terms of trying to do better than their parents? You know, that's that's that is part of the American dream, right? Or that is part of, I, I mean, daughter of immigrants. I mean, that was part of why they came here was to ensure that they can plant seeds for their kids to pro- to prosper, and then you know, so on and so forth. And I just I had I had a lot of luck and a lot of opportunity given to me. And so I credit that. But um, I don't know, I have kids and I just wonder, any hope for them? (laughs) Or uh, how differently should they prepare for their future? And I'm talking more about Gen Z as they they rise through their adult lives. Well, you know, we have have a radical... um, influx right now. We have, in a, in a positive way, you know, we have d- the Democratic Socialists of America have, mm-hmm. you know, some of the greatest numbers they've had in, uh, since they were founded. And um, we have radical, good radical ideas like harm reduction uh, or uh, very uh, kind of new sensitive ways of seeing mental health emerging and being mainstreamed, you know. And uh, I think there are things to feel good about, right? There's change to feel, I mean, gay marriage, you know, I know that we have a Supreme Court that's trying to set back a lot of these things, but I think the attitude of the people, and we can see from Kansas about reproductive justice, right? That there's been a social change, even in my lifetime, that that I think we can feel like the the worm will turn back. And and I think, you know, tax reform is a hard one, but if you see how quickly some of these radical ideas have moved to the center, good radical ideas, again, not like the bad ones have too, like alt-right uh, thinking, but, um, you know, I think we, we could potentially see uh, a world in which millionaires paying their fair share in taxes would, would come to pass, you know? It, it kind of brings us to your next book, which is this idea of not buying into this myth of do it yourself, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I think that the current generation, the youngest generation right now gets that. They know that things aren't just going to happen on their own uh, magically when you work hard and apply yourself. Let's talk about bootstrap, liberating ourselves from the American dream. What is the big message there that you want to unravel? Well, sort of like the squeeze and it's sort of like our organization, Economic Hardship Reporting Project that uh, I've run um, since for 10 years. And I used to run with Barbara Ehrenreich, who just passed away. Um, but, we, you know, the, the thinking behind all these things is that there's a lot of shame and blame ladled at individuals. Uh, whereas many of the things that they're suffering from are structural. And one of the ways to show that is by getting 
their voices out there, getting the voices of people who may have experienced eviction or homelessness, get, get that out there into the public square. And one of my principles is also interviewing folks who've had some of these experiences and getting that into the mainstream media, right? And shearing all these conversations out of shame and blame. The American dream, when it was kind of coined in 1931, was not actually a condemnatory dream. It was one that was more inclusive and less individualistic than the mutated version that runs through our society today. So part of my book is to reclaim it, honestly, and maybe I should have had some cheery title, <laughs> um, some puff, kind of uh, more fuzzy, uh, warm and fuzzy title, like Reclaiming the American Dream. But that's really what I'm trying to do in Bootstrap, because of the, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is what it now is, it, that's what people now think the American Dream is, you know, we can do it, we do it on our own has not worked for almost anyone. And many of the people who are the icons of this, you know, I'm thinking about um, the $44 billion anti-hero Elon Musk, you know, his, he came from a wealthy South African family. If you look at most of these people, they had support. It might, I mean, he's, I think he disputed that they're emerald mines. It doesn't matter. I mean, he still was, came from wealth and this idea that he's a self-made man or that many of these people were self-made men, um, self-made people is pretty, I mean, if you look closely, which I, I did in bootstrapped, you'll see that that's not the case. So, uh, I mean, I look at, uh, Emerson. I look at Horatio Alger. I look at um, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, and they all had a lot of dependence and interdependence in their lives. I mean, Laura Ingalls Wilder's family, Pa, remember Pa from Little House on the Prairie? He was completely dependent, the real Pa, on his neighbors. He was a terrible farmer. <laughs> and so, if you, I mean, just on an almost cartoonish anecdotal level, each one of these figures of uh, you know, individual grit. It turns out they were part of a community that held them aloft. And I guess that that's sort of what I want with all these projects. I want people to stop blaming themselves and to start seeing things clearly. I, I call it radical self-help. On the other side of the equation, though, Alyssa, you know, I think that the, for those who really buy into the theory, the, the thesis of like, I made everything possible for myself. I, you know, that's that famous, like, was it Snoop Dogg? He's like, I like to thank myself, you know, uh, <laughs> it's like the viral meme on Instagram. And I mean, you know, there's, there's truth to that, but I think that there, people take it really personally when you say, well, no, you also like came from a rich family. You're, you know, I think about when I was in high school and I really struggled with the SATs. Uh, after I bombed it the first time, I begged my mother to send me to a tutor. She refused the first time, but she really saw how, I, how much help I needed and like, you know, put as much the pennies and dollars together to get me, you know, um, some help. Meanwhile, you know, a friend down the street, her parents are donating to an Ivy League. She gets all the tutoring. She goes to a private school. And yes, she's brilliant and worked hard. And I think I said something to her that really offended her one day where I was like, well, you know, things are different for you than they are for me. And she's so offended, almost broke up our friendship. And we were young at the time, but she's like, well, I work hard and, and that's it. You know, like I work for everything I get. And I was like, well, your father's a rich guy too. And I didn't say that, but even as adults, it's hard to have these conversations with friends and others. And I think that there's a defensiveness. Um, people don't want to credit anything but their own hard work. And I think that's, some, that's a hurdle, I think. At the same time, we want to 
tell people that it's not your fault if you haven't achieved X, Y, and Z, even though you worked hard and all the things. Also, we need to give a message to those who did achieve all of those things and say, hey, start crediting your luck and where you came from and all the things. Like, Be a little bit more clear as to how you arrived to where you are because sometimes we just go from zero to success and don't give those finer details. Yeah, I call it the art of interdependence in my book. And because I think we we think of dependence or even interdependence, we think of it as codependence, right? We think of it as sort of a shameful lack of resilience or something that we need other people. But I, my argument is that it takes a lot of craft and skill to depend on people well. I mean, it takes a lot mm-hmm. of craft and skill to get welfare. <laughs> it takes, yes. I mean, it's you have to wait in line for hours. You have to fill out tons of forms. I mean, we were, we had, in our last season of our radio show, we had an episode on the administrative burden, which is the name for uh, the, the, the kind of burden that people take on when they try to get uh, unemployment money. They, a lot of the pandemic was filled with this for all of us, right? Remote schooling and um, unemployment money and um health forms, right? There's like, so there's a huge burden. I mean, the middle-class version is like, you know, summer camp or whatever, or scholarship for your FAFSA for your kids or for college, right? But, you know, the working poor or the, you know, really quite poor version is to try to, you know, get uh, Medicaid and SNAP, right? And, and it takes craft and skill and it takes craft and skill to get help uh, with your business. It takes craft and skill to get help with your uh, mental health and mental illness. Right. So, uh, that's part of what I'm getting at in the book that, that I think we need to see dependence as being dependent in a, in a healthy, good way is very, um, specialized. And also one thing I, I learned this from, um, a fellow journalist, uh, Bob McKinnon, he, he likes to have, uh, guests of his his show, thank the people who made them who they are. Mm-hmm. And I went on his show, I don't know, a couple months ago and I did just that. And it was a beautiful exercise. It was like a meditation or something like, who would you like to thank? And not in, not in a gross, one of the things I hate about the Academy Award, um, thank, you know, uh, thanks is they're always to people's like agents. Right. <laughs> and like very, they're very instrumental, but this was like, what is, who is somebody that you'd like to thank for making you who you are? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, my, I, I had a teacher when I went to Stuyvesant and, uh, it was, um, uh, the, the man who wrote Angela's ashes, uh, who became really famous late in life. But when he was a school teacher at Stuyvesant high school in New York, he, um, was just a, you know, school teacher who kept telling the same stories from Angela's ashes to his students and inspiring them. And he wrote things on my papers when I was 13, 14 years old, Frank McCourt, um, that sort of helped me become a writer. Mm. And so I was like, that person made me who I am. Well, for me, it was definitely my English teacher, Mrs. Perchuk, whom I read about in my forthcoming book. Wow. Oh, really? Cool. cool. Like so meaning such, I mean, for, I remember I'll, I'll, I'll share this one little cute story where I was the new girl in high school, 10th grade, brand new. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who was popular or who was on the lacrosse team and who I should be nice to and who I should be patient with. And I remember in in her English class, uh, we were talking about a book. I don't know. I think it was like Catcher in the Rye. And we were having conversations about it. And one one of the classmates, a boy, said something that was really rude or whatever. And I just said, 
you're crazy. And then the next morning she comes, says, come to my desk for you. I said, what? She goes, yesterday when you told so-and-so that he's crazy, that was brave. And I said, what? What?" She goes, just go back to your desk. That's it. That's all. Like almost like, you know, (laughs) that's all. And she was really like aware of the risks that kids would take socially in school and would make sure you knew that when you were being brave or you were, when you were stepping up to, to say something, to talk to like, to challenge someone, to talk to someone, like she wanted to encourage that, you know? And she, and because I didn't know this kid was popular, you know, basically that's what I found out later when I was like, oh, maybe I should have held my tongue. Cause you know, this could have been a social pitfall for me, but whatever point is she saw things in us that we didn't recognize in ourselves, like a moment of bravery and made sure to, to, to let us know. Um, and, and maybe have it, uh, have us figure it out for ourselves, but it was, it stuck with me. You know, I thought about it and I was like, how could I, and now as an adult reflecting on, it, I'm like, oh, I get it. But, you know, just a small, small example of how uh, a teacher can make a, a life's difference for you and change the lens through which you see things. I want to end on talking about your poetry book about money called Monetize. Alyssa, tell me, how is finance poetic? <laughs> oh, wow. I, I think it's really quite um, beautiful in its way. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the books, the book is, is sort of about uh monetizing, like, so it would be about, uh, the role advertising plays in your self-image and slogans and, uh, plays in women's, women's self-image. Um, so it's a little different than just straight up markets, but, um, some of it is also like documentary poetry, which is this process I use where I like report, um, interview people and then turn it into poems. So it has sort of the voices of people, um, either just sources or people I know speaking and sort of, I collage that together. So that's, that's part of what monetized is about. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, you're so prolific, Alyssa. We are so honored to have you on this show. I want to put all your links in our show notes, uh, for squeezed as well as bootstrapped and your public radio series going for broke. You are a gem and thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. It's great to great to meet you. Thank you so much to Alyssa for joining us. Stay tuned for Friday's episode of Ask Farnoosh. And you know what? I'm going to talk a little bit about the White Lotus in that episode. Make sure you are caught up on the White Lotus. I'm going to be talking about what I think of the ending, what that show has been teaching me about money and class and power. So many things. Until then, I hope your day is so money. Money.